Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast at Flourish and Blots. Today we will be discussing the selling of dark artifacts, Gilderoy Lockhart's first appearance, several herrings of the red variety, and Lucius Malfoy's deception. So to quickly summarize this chapter, while at the burrow, Harry and the Weasleys receive their school supplies list, containing almost entirely books by Gilderoy Lockhart. A few days later, the crew prepares to go to Diagon Alley and travel by flu powder. Harry's first trip with flu powder ends in him arriving at the wrong grate, instead landing him at Borgen and Burke's. As he is getting his bearings, Draco Malfoy and his father, Lucius, walk into the shop. Harry hides and overhears Lucius attempting to sell some dark artifacts to the shopkeeper, and escapes only after they leave. After bumping into Hagrid, Harry is returned to the Weasleys and Hermione, who has just arrived. They go to Flourish and Blotts to buy books, where Lockhart is signing copies of his autobiography. Lockhart spots Harry in the crowd and seizes him for a photo op, then makes the announcement that he will be serving as Hogwarts' new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher this year. They again encounter Lucius and Draco, the former of whom goads Arthur Weasley into a fistfight on the shop floor. Hagrid breaks it up, and they return to the Leaky Cauldron before traveling by flu back to the burrow again. So starting off with the conversation that Harry hears between Draco and Lucius and Morgan and Burks, um, Harry's hiding, half hidden in the vanishing cabinet, which we'll talk about later, and he hears uh, Draco and Lucius come in, and they are talking about him. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's a really funny coincidence, actually. Draco is basically complaining to his father about how he, Harry, gets special treatment from all the teachers, and he gets to play on the Quidditch team, and how Hermione is better than him in all their subjects. And Lucius seems really annoyed by this. Yeah, he he seems really frustrated. Like, why are all these, you know, mudbloods and just people, half-bloods, half people that should not be famous and getting attention doing this? Yeah, and, and why, specifically, why are they performing better than my son? Right. He's pure blood and should be better than them and everything. Right. Um, also in this conversation, we hear um, what Lucius is kind of worrying about in this in this moment. Right, so we mentioned he's selling dark artifacts to Borgen, but why is he doing that? Well, basically he's worrying that Arthur Weasley, who's been leading raids on a bunch of wizarding households looking for dark artifacts, might come knocking at his door soon, and he implies that if they were to find certain of these artifacts, he mentions poisons in particular, um, it might look bad for him. Mm-hmm. And so we can infer that he does have dark artifacts designed to torture muggles mm-hmm. that he has or does still use and now needs to get rid of them because of these raids. Right. So speaking of dark objects, we have some foreshadowing of dark objects that we're actually going to see later. They're all um, in the Half-Blood Prince. Um, they all feature prominently in that book. Mm-hmm. The first of which is the cursed necklace, which in the sixth book, Draco uses to try to kill Dumbledore and ends up cursing Katie Bell. Right. So I think what ended up happening there was Draco had Madame Rosmerda under the Imperious curse, and she handed it off to Katie Bell in the girl's bathroom. 
To give to Dumbledore. To give to Dumbledore. And and I think in turn cast the Imperious Curse on Draco's behalf on Katie Bell. I'm not exactly sure about that, but she was definitely bewitched somehow. Right. Um, and then she accidentally touches it and it curses her and she almost dies. Right. So we see this is our this is one of the objects in Morgan and Burks right now. Um, the next one is the Hand of Glory. Right. So at the climax of the sixth book, the Hand of Glory is used by Draco in combination with some Peruvian instant darkness powder that he bought from Fred and George to smuggle all the Death Eaters into Hogwarts and get them past um, what little security there was in the corridors at the time because nobody could see anything in the Peruvian instant darkness powder except for Draco, because who had the, the hand. hand of glory because it gives light only to the beholder. Right. So a lot of these things are tied to Draco and his use of them in the sixth book. Um, The last one and most interesting is the vanishing cabinet. So what we realized from rereading this chapter is that there's a very interesting misdirect by Rowling. So Harry is hiding in the vanishing cabinet just because he sees something he can get into um, when he gets it, you know, comes in at the wrong grate and sees the Malfoys. So he gets into this cabinet, but he doesn't close the door all the way. Um, we're led to believe it's closed, but she specifically says it's not closed all the way. Mm-hmm. And this is important because um, we know that at this moment, the other mansion cabinet is at Hogwarts and is working. Right. It gets broken later on in this book, and we'll read about that, I think, in chapter eight. Um, but at this moment, the vanishing cabinet is operational. And so if Harry were to have closed the door all the way, he would have, have vanished and reappeared at Hogwarts. Yes. So very important that he did not do that. And also by doing that, it shows that Rowling has sort of pre-planned um, this whole storyline with the vanishing cabinet, which as we know, um, you know, there's some things that lead up to this, but eventually Draco uses the cabinets to bring the Death Eaters in to kill Wal- um, to kill Dumbledore during the sixth book. Yes. Yeah, and you make a good point. I, I think it's it's quite clear that Rowling had a purpose for all of these objects when she wrote about them in this book. Mm-hmm. And so it, it indicates that at least she had the general story arc of Half-Blood Prince already written out Which at the time. Which is very interesting because these are a lot of very specific um, yeah. things related to Draco. So this whole scene is a lot of foreshadowing, actually. Mm-hmm. One thing that gets introduced in this chapter that's not super critical to our understanding of the book as a literary work, but is just kind of fun, is flu powder. Yeah. Which is this means of magical transport through fireplaces. And it's it's comparable to apparition in a sense because it's sort of like teleporting. It's just very specific. You can't teleport anywhere. You can only teleport to fire grates. But um, one thing that it made me think of in rereading this chapter and thinking about traveling to fireplaces and using magical transport was the idea of Santa Claus. Right. And how Santa Claus travels through... Down chimneys. Down chimneys. Yeah. And it's sort of like if you were to reimagine the myth of Santa Claus in this universe, you would you would think like, oh, the way that that myth came about that he travels down chimneys is because it's a misunderstanding of yeah. what flu powder is, right? Yeah. And we'll see in Goblet of Fire when the whole Weasley clan gets stuck in the, the Dursley's fireplace. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like that too, where they like, they just end up stuck in the chimney because they don't have a real fire. Right. You know? So I wonder if that's how that in, in universe, in the Harry Potter universe, if that's how the Santa Claus myth got started, you know? Right. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, and just thinking about it as almost a pre 
equal to apparition, at mm-hmm. least for us as readers, because, you know, we see, oh, this is cool. You can just say the name of a place and you can go there. Um, but you do have to be using this flu powder in the grates. And then apparition is, of course, you know, much better than this as a transport. Mm-hmm. And we see how unreliable it is just in, you know, Harry as a first time right. user totally screws up and ends up totally in the wrong place in, in Borgen and Burks and Nocturne Alley instead of Diagon Alley. But it's not even the way the passage is written. It's not even as though he like stepped out at the wrong time or like intentionally. No, they just delivered the him wrong there. one. Yeah. It, he just was like had his eyes closed and was spinning and was just like and fell out. Yeah. And he just fell out and he was in the wrong place. Right. So it's not a very great means of transport. It's not. However, comparable to apparition, you know, and splinching, I, it's, <laughs> it's also a lesser uh, lesser consequence, I, I suppose, depending yeah, on where yeah. you end up. <laughs> That's true. And it definitely is a lot safer. A lot of wizards, they say, prefer flu to apparition mm-hmm. for that reason. So before we get into more of the meat of the chapter, there are a few red herrings that are introduced in this chapter, either for mysteries in this book or in the series in general. Um, So one example of that is Percy. Um, Percy has kind of been acting weird since we were introduced to him in this book. Um, Just kind of separating himself isolating himself from the family he reads he's reading this book about like prefects getting power and seems Mm. very ambitious um in a way that sets him up to be maybe a sketchy character in this whole um mystery that comes up in the book Mm -hmm. and even though it just turns out that he actually has a girlfriend and that's why he's acting weird um it is interesting to think about the fact that it does in a way foreshadow his separation from the Weasleys and his ambition in terms of the ministry and mm-hmm. his later, you know, betrayal of them. Yeah, and I think that's something that we noticed last chapter, but it's important to, to recognize that every time that we interact with Percy, there are these little hints and clues. Mm-hmm. And I think um, especially Ron, who is sort of sensitive to this as Percy's brother, gets the sense that Percy is like different than all the other Weasleys and that he is more ambitious than them and that he would sell them out depending right. on if it was the right price. You know, so it's it's important to be cognizant of all of that going forward. And, and every time we see him be thinking about, you know, what's his motivation here and what is he thinking about? There's another one that comes up in this chapter that's a pretty interesting red herring considering what the rest of the book, how the rest of the book plays out, which is that Hagrid shows up in Nocturne Alley mm-hmm. and he finds Harry there, which is very fortuitous for Harry because right. he's lost and confused. Um but Hagrid also doesn't have a great explanation for being there. And when Harry asks him about it, he kind of acts shifty. Yeah, he seems like he doesn't want to talk about it. And Yeah. Um, and in context, the reader is obviously supposed to think like, hey, something is up with Hagrid. He's not being honest here. And we know from the previous book that Hagrid is known for maybe doing some illegal dealings um, mm-hmm. in the magical world, meeting with characters in sketchy pubs things like that when he got Norbert. So, you know, we do wonder about him that he could be doing something there that he shouldn't be. That's a great point. It definitely sets him up to be sort of a guy who might be doing some under the table dealings Mm -hmm. at this moment in time and just doesn't want to talk about it with Harry. But we'll see later on in this book, he becomes the subject of an investigation and is eventually taken off to Azkaban because they think that he's the one who reopened the chamber, Mm -hmm. assuming that he did it 50 years ago as well. Right. 
And so it sets him up to be a good red herring for the reader to be like, oh no, maybe it really was Hagrid. Especially when the reveal happens, when Tom Riddle's diary reveals that Hagrid did it the last time. And then, of course, we find out that's not really true. The last red herring we noticed was Draco, who, um, of course, actually, you know, leads to some genuine foreshadowings of later in the series. But there is a red herring of him being involved in this current mystery. So um, in last chapter, we already had Fred and George speculating with Ron and Harry that um, Draco may have been the one to send Dobby and warn Harry not to go back to school um, because... He doesn't like Harry, and he's talking about how he's jealous of Harry and Hermione in this chapter. So his actions are kind of supporting that theory right now. And, you know, and then we get to the twist where it is it is Lucius, but it's right. not Draco. He has no knowledge of any of this. Um, so right now it's just some of that is being supported in this chapter. And, of course, Harry and company spend the bulk of this book investigating Draco. Right. And then only to find out that Draco is just as confused and bewildered as they are, but with a different attitude. He's like, oh, I wish I knew who it was. I could help them. Which is a contrast again to the sixth book, which is interesting seeing this book as a contrast to the sixth book in general. Because we see, you know, Harry does investigate Draco in the sixth book. And again, everyone's like, no, it's not Draco. Mm-hmm. Like, we've always thought it's Draco. Like, it's not him. Then it is him. So it's kind of an interesting comparison in many ways i think this book is a foil for half right yeah a lot of the same um objects keep coming up over and and it's more of a mystery than those two books are more mystery than i think any other it's possible i mean definitely they have more of a whodunit kind of thing yes right um yeah it's a good point i think we'll probably see a lot more parallels between them as we keep going Mm mm-hmm So next, we want to talk about one of the most interesting characters that's introduced in this book and his first appearance, which is Gilderoy Lockhart. So what do we learn about Gilderoy Lockhart in this chapter? And what did we already know? Well, we already knew that he was very handsome and popular and that people like a lot of women and Molly were very into him. Um, We also know at the beginning of this chapter that um, all of his books are assigned to the second years for school. Right. So what Fred assumes based on that is that whoever the dark arts teacher is, is a witch and is probably a big fan of Lockhart's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But in fact, we see that it is Lockhart himself who is the new defense against the dark arts teacher. And he has assigned nearly all of his books as necessary reading for the students. So that tells us a lot about him already. It tells us that he is very vain He's attention-seeking and fame-seeking. He's opportunistic and clever. He spots Harry in the crowd and thinks this will be a great photo op. He even says, together, you and I are worth the front page. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uses anything he can get to get attention and celebrity status. We know that he has um, written a lot of books, so he's prolific. He's clever. He's seen as an expert in everything by the wizarding community. Um, he purports to be a big adventurer. And, you know, has seen everything that there is to see. Right. But we will soon find out that that is pretty fraudulent. It is. And, you know, I think we have all had professors who've assigned their own books. And we know how (laughs) annoying that is. But this is Lockhart assigning exclusively all of his books. So that's clearly a level of uh, vanity and narcissism that um, is not common. 
Um, but it's probably, you know, it's a caricature of real life. Yes, definitely a caricature of real life. Um, and it seems like, you know, he is, as we said, opportunistic. He thinks he can use this fight that we're going to talk about between Lucius and Arthur to get publicity, connecting to himself. You know, he feels like any publicity is good publicity in a way. And he also believes that, well, Harry is famous and he must be feel the same as I do. He must want this fame, which we which we see is not true. Um, yeah, and in fact, he believes that Harry is fame-obsessed like him. Right. And that everything that Harry does, he does for attention, which yes. is almost the opposite of true. And this actually ties into um, Ginny's character, mm-hmm. because um, this is the first time that Ginny really talks in front of Harry, and she actually defends Harry when um, people are making fun of him and saying, oh, Harry, like, you know, what did they even say? Sorry. <laughs> it's Okay. Well, when Draco is sort of goading Harry and the Weasleys, he says, you know, you can't even go into a bookshop without making the front page. Right. And Ginny says, you know, he didn't want all that. Like, leave him alone. And so that shows that, you know, not only that, you know, she likes him, but she doesn't like him because he's famous. You know, she cares about him and she really knows him in a way because Harry doesn't like this fame. Yeah, she gets that he doesn't care about the attention, that he doesn't want the attention for defeating Voldemort that it makes him uncomfortable and and she really like senses that I think because she hasn't spent a ton of time with Harry it just is sort of a thing that she notices that he's uncomfortable when they're taking that picture together and it's another element of Ginny's character that we are just slowly learning about which um you know just gives us more insight into her character throughout this book that it's very important Okay, so we have a lot of questions about Lucius and his motivations, but first we do see that he picks a fight on purpose with Arthur. So as we said before, Arthur is the head of the Muggle Artifacts portion of the ministry, and um, they are conducting raids, and so they clearly have very different ideas about what disgraces wizard kind and can kind of be seen as a microcosm for Voldemort's ideology versus the wizarding community at large, or, you know, people that are accepting of Muggleborns and people that believe purebloods are the only people that should be allowed. So he clearly picks this fight on purpose. He's been waiting to kind of get back at Arthur. He knows that he's kind of screwed. He's already selling some of his stuff, and he's angry. So that's one part of it. Um... And we do know that in the aftermath of the fight, he picks up Ginny's books and slips the diary, Tom Riddle's diary, into her cauldron. Mm-hmm. So we know that this happens. Um, we know that there's this political situation with Arthur. Um, but then we have some questions about, you know, why exactly does he do this? How much should he attend? And why now? Right. So with the whole political situation thing, I think there's something else uh, about why he picks the Weasleys and why he picks Ginny. Which is that, you know, the Malfoys, especially Lucius Malfoy, see other purebloods that cavort with muggles to be basically blood traitors. Mm -hmm. And that they're just as bad as muggles. If they're, like, betraying wizard kind by, you know, doing commerce with them and being friends with them, that it's a betrayal of wizard kind. And this is a historical prejudice that goes back centuries to when wizards were actually being persecuted by muggles. But the fact that it still exists today... um, a lot of wizards see that as unacceptable, right? So that's why mm-hmm. he, there's so much tension between Lucius and Arthur in particular. And that's why he feels like he needs to get back at him and and why he picks Ginny to target with this. So he knows that 
Tom Riddle's diary is a weapon that can be used against Hogwarts, and he knows that it will open the Chamber of Secrets again. He probably doesn't know, I can. I think we can say with certainty that he doesn't know that it was a, a Horcrux, that it was a piece of Voldemort's soul, because there's no way he would have been so careless with it if he had known. Right. And Voldemort really doesn't tell anybody about the Horcruxes as a rule. Mm-hmm. So he definitely knows that it's a weapon. He plants it with Ginny intentionally so that she will open the chamber and start killing Muggleborns, and then she'll be blamed, Arthur will be disgraced, and his whole pro-Muggle wing of the ministry will be thrown into disarray. That's his plan. Yeah, so we can assume that that's his plan, and we wonder, you know, how far, how long was this planned? Um, How long did he, did he want it to specifically beat the Weasleys? I mean, we can assume that that is his plan, and that he has all these different tactics going on. Um... But we kind of wonder how far he expects it to go. Yeah, so I think I think he expects it to go about as far as it did. Um, I don't think he could predict all of Tom Riddle's memory behavior. Mm-hmm. But um, because, because obviously Tom Riddle's memory behaves differently than you would think he would. You know, right. when he opened the chamber the first time, it was just like, let's unleash it on all the Muggleborns and try to kill as many as we can before we get caught. This time around, they're isn't really a pattern to the attacks until Tom Riddle realizes that he can try to use it to get to Harry. Right. And then in that in that particular way, that's why he takes Ginny into the Chamber of Secrets at the end of the book as sort of a bait to get Harry to go down there and confront him. Right. But Lucius clearly didn't want that to happen. He just wants it to go and kill a bunch of Muggleborns. Mm-hmm. So obviously he didn't he didn't fully understand what the consequences of unleashing this weapon were or how it would work, but he had a sense of how it would work. Yeah, and then on top of that, we can wonder, you know, why now? Um, Wondering if it's possibly connected to his conversation, you know, with Draco at the beginning. Does, is he so frustrated by the fact that, you know, Hermione and Harry and people that he does not believe are worthy um, get this attention and do better than his own pure-blood son at Hogwarts? Does he feel like, you know, Hogwarts is going down the tubes, we need to have some, you know white supremacist rally is going on <laughs> yeah i mean it, it basically is that yeah and I, I think that's probably true i think that's probably why he picks now as 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 opposed to any other year in particular and there was one other thing that i wanted to bring up regarding this which was there is like sort of a biblical allegory and connection here to the idea of like a, the snake in the garden of eden and like original sin this isn't the same temptation style as like the snake offering an apple to Eve, but it is similar in a way. If you think about Lucius's deception as being sort of like a, here, I'm just going to place this book in your cauldron without you knowing. Right. Um, It's not like someone offering you something and Mm -hmm. saying like, you can use this if you want. But when Ginny does discover the diary later, it's her choice whether she wants to use it or not. Right. She could have just like told the teacher about it or like written a letter home to her parents mm-hmm. and just been like, there's this weird diary that ended up in my stuff and I don't know whose it is. So I'm going to just like tell Professor McGonagall about it right. and hand it in. No, instead she decides to use it herself. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, it sort of is like a temptation because it wasn't like anyone forced it on her or even bargained with her for it. It was just there, and she had the option of using it or not, and she chose to use it. Yes, and another thing about what did Lucius know or how much did he plan, you know, is he alone in planning this? Because if 
um, we're correct about what we believe his plans are, this is a pretty big deal and a pretty big plan yeah. that he has. And, you know, does did he plan it alone? Dobby clearly knows about it. So he's clearly either overheard or had Lucius speak directly to him about it. Um, probably overheard, but Draco doesn't know anything about it. Right. And he never does. So, you know, is it just, is it Lucius? Is it Lucius and Narcissa? Is it Lucius and some other people, other Death Eaters? I mean, are there other people involved? Is he kind of this evil, evil mastermind or <laughs> just someone who's kind of, you know, thought this was a cool idea and yeah. is trying to do it? I think one of the interesting things about Lucius is he is very clearly very smart. Yes. He is good at planning. He is sort of a mastermind, but he also does make mistakes and he doesn't always think things through completely. Um, and I think part of that is that he doesn't have like a big brain trust of people that he can always talk to about and plan stuff with. Oh, and yeah, one thing I'm thinking about now is, you know, he is in a disgraced position with Voldemort. He yeah. doesn't even, you know, probably know or believe that Voldemort um, is still even around. And that's what Voldemort accuses him of later. Um, and maybe he is trying to, um, you know, maybe curry some favor with him by doing this. Maybe saying, you know, if if this is true, I need to gain myself more power. And maybe he would be willing to take credit for the opening of the Chamber of Secrets mm -hmm. within his own community to gain some status. Right. Of course, not understanding that when Voldemort does return, I'm right. sure he's going to be pretty upset to hear that one of the pieces of his soul is now Destroyed. gone. <laughs> exactly. Well. So, yeah, well, I think I think one of the things about Lucius is that he's sort of a tragic figure in a sense. He's obviously not a good guy, but all of his plans seem to fail at the last minute for some right. unforeseen reason. In this case, because... He doesn't realize that the Tom Riddle in the diary is actually a piece of Voldemort's soul and is sentient and wants to go after Harry Potter more than anything. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a thing that will keep coming up about Lucius over and over as we're going to see. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast at Flourish and Blots. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. Feel free to email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com with any questions or comments you have. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcast. Stay tuned for next time when we drive through Chapter 5, The Whomping Willow. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.